Blog Talk Radio. Blog Talk Radio. This episode of Kimberly's Intentional Moment is brought to you by the Seika Network on Blog Talk Radio. Well, good morning, good afternoon, good evening, and good night to those of you that are across the world. I am super excited today to reintroduce my teacher, Salvatore Zambito, who's joining us once again to talk a little further about yoga and the philosophies of yoga, and today we're going to get into some some more of our deep stuff, aren't we, Salvatore? Welcome, Salvatore. Well, hi, Kim. Uh, yeah, we're getting uh, into some interesting topics, I think. It's always fun to be with you. never really know where it's going to go. I, and that is part of the fun, isn't it? Just the not knowing and the the flexibility that we have in our minds to just roll with it. Um. Let's go. This morning, this morning, um, I want to just make sure that our listeners understand you and I. But, but really, in working with you over the years, I have learned how much, um, how loaded the questions are that I tend to ask you. And um, listeners, I want you to know that Salvatore sometimes takes a few moments and reflects on those questions. And so this is not dead airtime. In fact, I invite you to reflect with us on the question just because it may bring questions to mind for you. And again, you can always contact me at kimtalkradio at gmail.com. You can also contact me on Facebook on Kimberly's Intentional Moment page. Uh, and so we, we want to take a moment when we're asked something as deep and, and uh, like I said before, loaded as these questions because it takes thought, it takes a process in the mind to um, come up with the best response or the best answer that you can in this moment. And if we ask that same question in another moment, Salvatore and hopefully us, we would take our time to answer it in that moment. And it might be a little different in that moment, wouldn't you say so, Salvatore? Every moment is absolutely unique. So, yes. There's no question. Therefore, yeah. Well, so today, I want to touch on yoga and religion. And uh, to be more specific, you know, there's been some press uh, about yoga over the past few years, and I, I'm sure it goes further back than that, but it's been pretty loud these past few years, um, especially um, with certain individuals talking about yoga being demonic or, um, you know, in this particular tradition, anti-Christian. And I, I would really like to get some, first of all, some background from you, Salvatore, and then also the answer to the question, you know, is, is yoga um, satanic or demonic, and is yoga even a religion? Those are all timely questions, 
and I really appreciate having some time in this forum to to explain it. I'm actually working on a lecture right now called Yoga and Christianity, Conflict or Complement, and I'll let you know when it comes to a completed uh, forum, and I actually have a venue to it. I'll invite you to it. Um, so I've been working with this for a number of years. Okay. I think one of the, the questions that I keep trying to answer, and I do it for myself, but I do it for others, there's a point that sometimes gets a little confused. And to some extent more in the UK than in America, that yoga originated in a part of the world we call India. And so what I'm going to do first is define yoga, define India, define Hindu, and then show how some of the confusions have come up. Okay, that would be great. Yeah, because this is, it's a contextual question and basically the question I'm going to just say now, the question is, is yoga a religion? I'm going to say it's yes and no. Uh, it's not a satisfying answer for Americans, but I'll explain why. So let's start with okay. India. The word India has an interesting origination. When Alexander the Macedonian, the great military genius, took his forces from... Macedonia, what is now northern Greece, took them across Turkey, what is now Iran, across Afghanistan, and into what is now northern India. They came to a massive river called the River Shindu, or Sindu. The Greeks had a hard time with the Sanskrit F at the beginning, the Sa. And so their answer to that was to take it off from the front and tack it on the back and turn the name of the river into the Indus. This came India. So the very name of this region is based on a Greek mispronunciation. If wow. you go to live in, in here, yeah, I'm, what I'm trying to get across is you are always safe with India assuming you know nothing. I've lived in India for many years. I've been in and out of India 15 times, literally. I've been studying and immersing myself in this so-called Indian tradition for 48 years. And I assume, where India is concerned, that I know almost nothing, and I also assume that everything I know could be wrong. So similar to um, our conversation about language, you know, when we were talking about the sutra and Sanskrit versus English, um, it's similar to that. You're saying that, you know, there's a bit of a disadvantage since you are not from there, haven't grown up there, you know, speak the language fluently first, is, is this kind of what well, you're saying? 
it's even more than that. I told one of my Indian friends that even after all, I said to to uh, Satish, I said, um, I've been living in India many years, studying it for many years, and it always takes me by surprise. And he said to me, it's exactly the same for me, and I'm a native. Okay. So this is an area, a region of the world of incredible complexity and incredible depth. Now, this I would just tell you that if you were to live in India, get a little bit of command of, of the main language Hindi and come to have good Indian friends and you get to be able to to read signs in the local alphabet, you will find that the name of this country is actually Bharat, which would be in Roman letters B-H-long-A-R-A-T, Bharat. And it means land okay. of the learned. It means land, land of, the of the learned. Okay. Yeah. So the name of the country has an actual meaning. Now, so what I'm trying to get across here is that very few people in the Western world even know the name of this region. Okay. So that's how the name India came to pass. And I will not be surprised, by the way, if sometime in the next 20 years, this land we call India formally changes their name back to Bharat. I hope they do. Okay. Next we'll deal with the word Hindu. Okay. When the Persians invaded northern India, they got to the river Sindhu, and they could not deal with the Sanskrit sa to the Sarsi ha, and turned it into the Hindus. So it became the river Hindus. Okay. And the land around the river became Hindustan, the land of the Hindu. It was such a huge river. I mean, it's like the Mississippi. It's just, it's very dominant. So the land okay. around it became Hindustan. Okay. The people who were living in the region became known as Hindus. The people who lived in Hindustan, the land around the Hindus, the river. But then over time, something very interesting happened, which was that there was a confederation of religions in the area, technically known as the Sanatana Dharma. But all of the religions then got lumped together as Hindu. Now, an expert in yoga, Indology and the Hindu religion, so-called, Pandit Rajmani Tigunate, said that calling all, and I'm paraphrasing, calling all of these religions Hindu is sort of like somebody coming to America, going to New England, and seeing the Presbyterians, the Roman Catholics, the Jews, the Mormons, the Pentecostals, and come away and saying that the people of New England practice a religion called Yankeeism and lumping them all together that way. Okay, wow, yeah. 
that does put it in perspective. So, yes. So the correct term for the confederation of religions is sanatana dharma, which would be the uh, eternal divine law. And there is some relationship, okay. but, there, but it's, they, these various forms are not one religion. So the word Hindu by itself does not give real information, Kimberly. It, it's a word that people will project their understandings onto, which may be a misunderstanding. So the word Hindu can relate to a geographic region, it can relate to an ethnic group. It can relate to a tradition of philosophy, which is quite distinct from a religious tradition. So there. How is that? How's what? What, what do you What do you mean? The distinction between the religion versus the philosophy. Philosophy and religion. Tell me what you mean by that. Two different fields. Okay. They yep. can. You know, their um, religion deals with worship and deities. Philosophy does not. There we go. Thank you. Now, philosophy may be used to support religion but in and sure. of itself is not religion. Okay. That, see, that's a very, um, I think that's a very important distinction for all of us to hear. Well, and even in the Western world, I think that it's very clear. If you go to a university, there'll be a philosophy department and a theology department. They're quite distinct. That's right. They may be in different buildings. So yes. part of the confusion here comes into a, rather comprehensive ignorance that I find in the Western world relative to the organization of Bahrat, this land we call India. So this is where the confusion comes in because we have a scrambled egg supper around the word Hindu. So somebody says to me, well, doesn't yoga have a Hindu tradition? I have to say yes, but it requires some definition here. So the word. So once, once again, like in, in, once again, like in the other shows that I've had you on, and 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 in this show in general, you know, this is not a black or white thing. This is not a you know yes or no answer it's yes but or yes and no kind of situation and 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 that can be uncomfortable it doesn't make it any less so it's i agree yes and this is probably an an okay time to bring up issues of cultural conditioning different cultures broadly speaking see the world in different ways and yes. one of the characteristics that I've found in the English-speaking world, which I don't find in all cultures, is a very intense two-valued logic system. We Americans particularly, and the British as well, really like for questions that 
have a yes or no implication to be yes or no, and sometimes there's nuance. Now, during the Gulf War, President Bush the Younger actually went on television and made the statement, I don't do nuance. That was certainly clear from his presidency that he didn't. But it's, he was also speaking for a lot of Americans. And so when we get into these philosophical discussions and historical discussions, we often cannot go yes or no. There's nuance here. And this is what we're dealing yeah. with, with, the, with your question is, yoga a religion? So what I've established, I hope, is that the very name India is based on a persistent Greek mispronunciation. Yeah. is based on a persistent Persian mispronunciation of the name of a river. It's fallen, and so I use those two terms for what I call linguistic convenience. The third word that I want to define here is yoga. Yes. Now, it might seem like an easy thing to do, but it's got, again, nuance. The word yoga comes from the root yuch in Roman letters, Y-U-J. Typically, American and British books on yoga will say that this root means union. And that's correct as far as it goes. Okay. But the the Sanskrit language has the most complete, so far as I can tell, and detailed grammar that has ever been produced, certainly in the Indo-European languages. And one of the books that is connected to that is called the Datupada, which is the recitation of verbs. The all... I think I've said this in a previous show, but all of the nouns in Sanskrit come from root verbs. So the entire issue of subatomic process is encoded into the language. The understanding of constant transformation. Yeah, we did. We talked about that in the last show. And it can't be... I just feel like... We probably can't hear that enough because it's you, you have to wrap your mind around that because that is not how English is at all. The, 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 most of the European, I don't know of any European language that is organized in a way that takes the energy matter transformation into account linguistically. Some of the Native American languages do. Uh, Mm -hmm. Sanskrit does. Uh, So there's a certain rigidity in our language that actually makes it difficult to understand the basic premise of yoga. But going back to the huge, the common uh, definitions given is union, but there are two other definitions. In, there are four sections to the Dantupada, 
and the word huge or the root huge appears in three of them. One of them means union, one of them means control, and one of them means samadhi. I'll talk about that in just a second because this is where the whole thing swings. Okay. So the issue of control has to do with applying direction, and this is where we get kind of an understanding of yogic practice. So when people in the Western world, particularly in America or Britain, hear the word yoga, they're usually thinking of people who are standing on their heads or undertaking various forms of flexibility and strengthening movements with yeah. the body. Uh, the, and so that would be where the control would come in. Who is controlling okay. control becomes a question. The word <laughs> is not translatable into English. Now, some languages have a word for this. Georg Forstein, one of the great, the late Georg Forstein, great Western yogi, tried mm-hmm. to translate samadhi, and he used a Greek term, enstasy. And I had to drop him a note. I said, uh, Georg, translating Sanskrit into Greek for English speakers is a lateral move. And he sent me a, a note back, and it was, we were having a very droll interchange here, and he said, you understand the problem. When I was studying Greek, we had a problem we had to deal with, which was that there were words in Greek that had no English equivalent. Yeah. So there was, this is where I'm going with this instancy, because in the Greek New Testament, the original, the New Testament was written in Greek, there's a reference to Jesus speaking to ecstasy. There was no word, and the best the translators could come up with was the peace that passeth all understanding. So there was a word for this, a single word for this in Greek. It's called ecstasy. There was a single word for this in Aramaic, the language Jesus spoke. There are two or three words for this in Sanskrit, words for it in Hindu. Many of the world's languages have a single word for the peace that passeth all understanding. The problem here, Kimberly, is that so few people in the English-speaking world have experienced this peace that passeth all understanding that there has been no concept of it, therefore there has been no word for it. Okay. So and that makes sense because until you have an experience, how will you have how will you have a word? I mean, it, until you have this shift, this moment of experience, you don't have anything to go on to even create a word. And so, what has happened here, Kimberly, is that people mm-hmm. who have had these experiences outside of the three and a half dimensions of the English-speaking world find themselves unable to explain or describe their experience because the language cannot cover fourth and fifth dimensional experience, which do exist. Yeah. But our language can't do it. So what we've done in the West, which I think is perfectly valid, 
is that we just adopt the word samadhi. More people okay. are starting to experience it. Yeah. It's happening. People don't know how to. I've had any number of students say, you know, this happened to me and I don't know how to talk about it. <laughs> and I, and yeah. I said, well, I'm the guy to talk to. You know, um, the net effect <laughs> is that even if you go into psychology, some of these states have elements in common with certain mental illnesses, and it's not mental illness. But the Western world is still so young. Remember, India, this land we call India, Bharat, has a continuous cultural history of 5,000 years. It's two and a half times older than Western civilization as such. Yeah. We're very young. Yes. We like to think of ourselves as very mature. I mean, it's 2,000 years. And that's fair. (laughs) It's fair um, that our minds think this way. However, from a cultural standpoint, we're in our adolescence. So we can adopt this word, at least hypothetically, that there is a consciousness that is latent within us And this takes us then to the Yoga Sutra. Now, this is probably a good moment to to put the Yoga Sutra into a context. Being 5,000 years old and being very philosophically inclined, the philosophers of Bharat examined every element of Western philosophy to the point of exhaustion before Western philosophy as such even began to emerge, even before Western civilization began to emerge. So let's just take a second. Can you, let's say that one more time, because I think that's big. So before, it, before Western civilization even emerged. Yes. Go ahead. Now, and we consider Western civilization to emerge with philosophy coming to play, into play. We don't consider Western civilization to have even existed before Western philosophy began to emerge. Those are together. Okay. Now, the, the so-called Indians had examined philosophy so exhaustively that every element of it, of what we call Western philosophy, had been taken to the point of completion before Western uh, civilization even began to emerge. Now, what this did was go from a couple of thousand schools of philosophy down to six, called the Shah Darshana. So the Indian tradition had six schools of orthodox philosophy that were in a, oh, how would you say, it was like they had a, a cooperative interplay. So there okay. the field of logic, Nayaya, there would be uh, different uh, schools of philosophy that looked at the world from different standpoints. 
So this was called the Shad Darshana, Shad being six, Darshana being viewpoints. And that roughly okay. is translated into philosophy. One of them was yoga. And it had a couple of functions. I'm not going to talk about all of them. But for our needs, it came very close to what we call psychology in the Western world. But it had a different definition of a theory of personality, which included the theory based on experience that humans had a latent consciousness within them called in Sanskrit called samadhi, in Greek called instasy, in English called the peace that passeth all understanding. Each of these schools of philosophy had a central textbook written by a great sage, and the central textbook of yoga is the Yoga Sutra, and the sage who wrote it was Patanjali. And in the second sutra, he defined yoga as yogashchitavriti nirodaha. And here we have a dilemma. We have four words that have no equivalent in English. Yoga, chitta, vritti, nirodaha. Yeah. So the first word, yoga, I'm going to give you the best translation that I have found provided by Swami Veda Bharati. Um, yoga is the state of consciousness in which all vibration in the energy field that we call the mind comes to complete stillness. In the Old Testament, we have the statement, be, be still and know that I am God. Um, so this peace that passeth all understanding is a state beyond the mind as such. So yeah. at this very moment, you and I and most of the listeners are dealing with a multitude of vibrations of various order in this energy field we call the mind, this chitta. However, yeah. the chitta in this speaks to the entire energy field we call the mind. So you and I share this chitta. When it becomes local, yeah. manas, manas. My little drop in this ocean of chitta is called manas. Okay. And this one I have immediate responsibility for. So, <clears throat> in addition to the great sage Patanjali, there was written and your best versions of the Yoga Sutra include commentary by another sage named Vyasa. And in the very first of the Yoga Sutras, he makes a commentary statement, yoga ha samadhi, which is to say yoga equals samadhi. So what he did here was give a hint that when the word yoga appears in the Yoga Sutra, it is referring to the huge root that means samadhi. So this is where I'm giving you the definition of yoga. Yoga is a state of consciousness. This is the first, the number one premier definition of yoga. But it shows up in the Yoga Sutra, the Bhagavad Gita, the Upanishad. 
it is referring to samadhi, a state of consciousness. Then the second definition of yoga is yoga is or yoga yoga is the practices said to bring about this state of consciousness. Then the third definition of yoga yoga is a tradition that perpetuates the practices said to bring about this state of consciousness called yoga. And then the fourth definition is yoga is a field of philosophy. I've already given... Wow. I've given a clue here to answer your question based on your excellent question earlier. What's the difference between philosophy and religion? So yoga traditionally in India was at one of the Shah Darshna and it was seen as a field of philosophy. Here's where the problem comes in. Yoga emerged in this world we call India where the dominant religion is what we call Hinduism. I'm going to draw a parallel to the Western world. Psychology has been speculated about in the Western world for about 2,000 years. But it started to take an actual scientific turn with disciplined observation and hypotheses and experimentation in the late 19th century. It reached a certain of maturity with Freud, who's often considered uh, the father of philosophy, but he really wasn't. He'd taken work up to that point, and he formulated it and put it out there in a way that people could in some ways relate to, even if they disagreed with him. Right. During this time of the great formulations of psychology, Europe was known as Christendom. It's hard for people to realize now just how integrated the Christian religion was with the political and social structures of the time. The secular societies that we have now in the West are a very recent development, Kimberly. This is not traditional at all. Okay. We might ask the question, I'm going to, to parallel it to your question, is yoga religion? I'll ask, is psychology religion? Well, people would laugh if you yeah. asked that. But, <laughs> I just did. <laughs> yeah. Yoga, I mean, uh, psychology emerged in Christendom. Therefore, it has the same relationship here that yoga has to Hinduism as a religion because Hinduism has been very dominant in politics and society in India, and yoga emerged in India, therefore is yoga Hinduism as a religion. Now going back to is psychology a Christian practice, the answer is yes and no. Once again, we're back to yes and no. Yes and no, because Mm -hmm. psychology can be practiced 
as a therapeutic or, or scientific modality with no reference to religion. And yet, there's a very strong tradition, at least in America, and I suspect throughout the Western world, called Christ-centered counseling. So what has happened here is that this scientific process has been adopted and has a religious expression. And so okay. this is a very similar analogy to yoga. And why you say yes and no. So now, yes, exactly. Now, if we go into the Yoga Sutra, what I've tried to establish here is that the Yoga Sutra then becomes a kind of handbook for the issue of defining what yoga is and how it is practiced. So the issue of, of yoga goes back to samadhi. Yoga equals samadhi. And the practices that are proposed in the Yoga Sutra are in support. So the second definition I gave you, yoga is the practices said to bring about this state of samadhi, the state of yoga. Yeah. So the practices that are given are pointers to a way of coming into this state of consciousness. So the what Patanjali lays out to begin with is that this state of consciousness is available through what he calls abhyasa and varagya. Practice and dispassion. This is a very broad statement. He lays out, but I've been able to count, ten pathways of practice that can help a person come to the state of samadhi. We all have different temperaments and directions of interest, and so what Patanjali has done is laid out ten pathways that lead us to samadhi, to this piece of test all understanding, according to our line of interest. Now, after he lays out the broad outline and framework of Vyasa and Vairagya, he makes a statement that there is an easier and quicker way to samadhi. And this is what he calls Ishvara Pradhita, which doesn't translate well into English, but my favorite translation of it is the practice of the presence of God. So you're going to need to go further into what you mean by God then, right? Well, Ishvara can be God, it can be Lord, it can be the soul. I don't know how far we can go with that in today's okay. talk. That would almost be okay. Maybe hour another show. So, yeah. Yeah. Sure. Um, sure. <clears throat> But what this is, Kimberly, is an entire dimension of yogic practice. <clears throat> oh, I'm so glad yeah. you brought up bhakti yoga. 
please, please go on. There's no way. There's no way to avoid it. If we're going to talk about yoga and religion, this is where the contact comes in. So, but I want to make it clear that in the Yoga Sutra, he is talking broadly about two pathways to this samadhi, to this peace of the path of all understanding. One of them is what we might call practices of psychological hygiene and personal growth through various meditative and self-observant practices. The other pathway that he points out is the pathway of bhakti yoga. And again, there are a number of definitions. The one that I use is the worship of the divine form. Patanjali highly endorses the worship of the divine form. He said it is the quickest and easiest way to come into the peace of passive all understanding. What he does not do is name a divine being for you to worship. Right. He is not pointing to Vishnu. He is not pointing to Shiva. He is not pointing to Jesus. From the structural scientific position of Patanjali, it doesn't really matter whom you're worshipping as long as you're worshipping. You can immerse yourself in the vision of your own soul, but from this standpoint, he is only pointing to the divine form. He is not pointing to a specific manifestation of the divine form. So to be clear, and the reason why I want to the reason why I want to bring this up is that, you know, it goes back to the question, you know, is yoga satanic or demonic or what people could call, you know, the dark side evil? To be clear, you keep using the word divine. Yeah. I just, I, I, want to, I want to make that distinction between what, because when you say you could worship anything, I can understand how someone could hear that as, well, you just said you could worship anything. Well, I suppose I can imagine someone moving into a devotional relationship with a negative vision. But that's okay. not what he's talking about. He is right. talking... and. From a certain standpoint, Patanjali is talking about samadhi. Yeah. From what I have seen, side, there is no movement toward the peace of the past with all understanding. Right. So the issue here, yoga equals samadhi. Samadhi equals the peace of the past with all understanding puts it on the so-called uh, light side of the force. Yes, and, and, and we want to be clear when we're saying peace in this moment, because I use the word peace in different ways. Peace in this moment, we mean P-E-A-C-E, not P-I-E-C-E. We mean peace. The, the, 
the the harmonization yep. of energies that we That's right. Yep. So uh, from that standpoint, I suppose that the techniques of yoga could be perverted. But remember, Christian practices have been perverted. The Black Mass was based on the perversion of the invocation. The the, the Roman Catholic Mass is the invocation of the angel's presence. And the Black Mass was a perversion of that divine ritual of the invocation of the angel of light. So anything humans create can be perverted. Yes. Thank you for saying that last sentence. Anything humans create can be perverted, yes. Even, well, probably will be, actually. Um, We're very perverse species (laughs) at this moment in our evolution. Um, Yeah. Again, another show. Is yoga a religion? Well, I have two books in my library on the Yoga Sutra of commentary by Catholic priests who have written explanations of yoga as a Christian process. For example, and, and, and how I do it. In my personal teaching, I've had students come to me. Remember, I, I don't know if you've mentioned this, but I taught yoga and stress management at Boise State University for six years. Before we could teach at Boise State, I had to go with the director, the uh, head of the department, to a group of uh, Idaho congressmen to establish whether yoga was a religion because we could not teach religion at Boise State. And we were able to establish that it was not. However, in that process, I did personal counseling with students because some of my Christian students were concerned. Ministers who didn't know what it was didn't understand warned them about it. Right. And if I were to give them a meditation, I would teach them to sit and to breathe and then teach them how to use the Lord's Prayer as a mantra, coordinating breath with the prayer. Or if they wanted to be shorter... I would have them use Jesus' name as a mantra, but I'd use the Spanish version, Jesus, because Jesus goes through the mind more smoothly than Jesus. Yeah. Or I would teach them, remember, this man we call Jesus could not have been named Jesus. There's no J. No J sound in Hebrew or Aramaic. Uh, Jesus, uh, the Greeks took his name and turned it into Iosis. And if you get the original version of the King James Bible, you'll find that his name is referred to as Iosis. Uh, there wasn't even a J in 
English, I believe, until the 14th or 15th century. So Jesus is a completely made-up name. His actual name was uh, Yeshua. Yeshua. Um, and I've also used Yeshua as a mantra for my Christian students. Nice. Does anything bad come from the name of Jesus? Especially mm-hmm. when the aim of the heart is devotion to Jesus, when the aim of the heart is to surrender to Jesus, how can anything bad come from that? Right. And so I am in total support of any of my students in any of their religious pursuits. Yeah. So from this standpoint, yoga itself not really a religion, but the practices of yoga can beautifully support any religious tradition. In the same way that, that psychology... So... Yes, I'm glad you went back to that. And, I, and that is often what I tell my students, same thing, is that it, it can support any religion. Again, it will actually deepen. But let's be clear. Let me just hold your point. Go ahead. Uh, I actually got a communication from a student from many years ago telling me and thanking me for how my transmission to her about her relationship to Jesus through this yogic context had completely transformed her relationship with Jesus, her life, and all people in her life. And this is from over 30 years ago. She'd been working with this Kimberly for several decades. Okay. Okay. I, I think I, I well no I, I didn't have a question I just I was I'm, I'm glad to hear you say um, again and it's not the first time I've heard you say it but that religion or that yoga can support any religion I, I do want to be clear though that again we're talking about peace that passes all understanding so we're, yes, we're, not we're not just talking, talking about standing we're, on our hips. That's right. And we're also not talking about, um, you know, um, evil or ego-based um, intention. We're talking about something well, I, much, much broader or bigger than that. Well, I think it's inevitable, Kimberly, that we're going to be coming into this from an ego standpoint, from a sense of separation. Um, right, both culturally and, so and in, um, uh, in, uh, in the language. Yeah. yeah, that's how humans are. Very few people go into yoga practice from the desire to come into full union with, shall we say, this thing we call a soul or with this thing called God or this thing called the universe. Very few people go into that. Most of us 
in the world as it is now. Go into it from the physical processes of wanting to be healthier, of maybe wanting to be prettier. Um, If pursued, yoga will inevitably bring people to a point of development where they touch on something very beautiful and peaceful within themselves. Yeah. And I think that the the overall thing that we want to get across this morning is that um, it is misunderstood if um, a a leader or a teacher is is conveying that yoga is somehow evil, the dark side, demonic, simply because it is vast and broad in its perspective. And there's a huge Because what I, what I, yeah, what I've understood when what I've talked is. to, exactly, and, and when, I've, when I have talked to um, my Christian friends about this, I mean, and I mean open Christian friends that are practicing really in the same way, or bhakti yoga, um, they, what they have said is that it, it can be that fear surrounding something so large that we just don't understand it. And they're very foreign Say that again? It comes from a very foreign culture. And there's another element here that I hesitate to talk about, but I'm going to touch on just very briefly, which is, it's very different, and it's coming from a dark-skinned culture. There's, there are subconscious elements of racism here. I don't mm-hmm. think it's conscious or intentional. Right. I understand what you're saying. But it's very hard to get away from that. There's also the sense of cultural superiority. Yep. It's huge. I have been, I've, you know, I've seen it within myself. It's very difficult, and this is, I find, even more difficult with my, some of my uh, English colleagues. Remember, Britain conquered and owned India for 300 years. There's a very strong right. element of rejection of India as having a wisdom that white people can learn from. It's less strong here. But, well, in and, the United and States. but this is an element of it. And, and it comes think, back... Go ahead. Sorry, I keep... I, we have a little delay here, and so I, I'm sorry if I'm um, talking over you. Uh, what, what comes up for me... Um, as a teacher, a practitioner, a student, a being of this earth, is we, it is, it is frightening to think of something so large that we don't understand, and what does that mean if I can't control it? If I can't, if I can't somehow stay on top of it, and I think that um, when when we can let go and 
just see the bigger picture, something a little larger than we are used to seeing, it, it can relax us a little bit. Do you understand what I'm saying? You moved into another topic. Okay. <laughs> we'll go into that another another show. Yeah, yeah, and we can spend an hour on control and release and the issues of yoga in that yeah. because you're talking yeah. about one of the huge areas of blockage to this piece of passive all understanding, to this samadhi. Yeah. And yep. I'm very happy to work both with the New Testament and the Yoga Sutra Mm-hmm. In dealing with that, there's no conflict here. No, there's no conflict. And and I guess the other thing I want to make sure that I say, because I've said it in many, many shows, what we're doing here is being honest. Let's just be honest about like, what you said about the ego. You know, what it is that we need, if you will, in our ego. And what it means when we go to something broader that the ego is like, whoa, 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 I don't really know what to do with all of this information. And what do you mean the peace that passes all understanding? What does that mean? And since There's I don't know no what that way. means, it's scary. Stop. Stop. Okay. There's no way to define that. Yeah. I'm sorry, Kimberly. You know, people say there is yep. no way in this culture to define it. Okay. And that, but again, all you're that, being all honest. That, all that we can do here, all I can do is say hypothetically, I'm going to the scientific yeah. method, and this is, the Yoga Sutra is a scientific methodology. Methodology. The second sutra is a hypothesis that there is a latent consciousness within you known in Christendom as the peace of passeth all understanding known in India as Samadhi, that there is this potential latent consciousness within you that your constant mental and emotional turbulence blocks. This is the hypothesis. The hypothesis continues that through the use of certain practices, you can help to bring about the emergence of this latent consciousness. He does, it's all hypothetical. Give it a try. Yeah. Yoga only exists on the basis of its practices. Now, some people go to a yoga class and then come back a second time. The question yeah. I ask my students is, I understand why you went the first time. Curiosity, a gift, maybe somebody forced you to, but... Why did you go the second time? That's a great question, Salvatore. Yes, it is. And the reason people go the second time is that they felt so good the first time, they wanted to have it happen again. (laughs) Yeah. And what was that feeling? The best I can say from years of asking hundreds if not thousands of people this question is a level of energized relaxation. 
in the body and the mind. Important to include that, yeah. Well, this, and so people thank go you to so much. Yes, that's right. They go to the second one because they, yes, and I, I get the same response. I haven't asked that question necessarily specifically to all of my students or many of my students, but I ask something surrounding that because, you know, what is it that makes us tick? You know, I'm, I'm always interested in, you know, the ego and, and the mind and, and why are you here? And especially in my class, because uh, a lot of students that come to my class are um, <laughs> immediately surprised by how often we laugh, how much we discuss life in between asana, how I discuss the breath, and I would say that it is that sense of, I guess my students would say that, yes, it's that sense of energized relaxation. I love that you use those two words together. And uh, although I wouldn't say that that's a quote from any of my students, but it's that similar feeling. And it's also the sense of um, community, communion, like a, a, a place where we come together and feel support. And again, we laugh a lot. Okay, you're there. <laughs> the samadhi is, it's easy. This is where we get things so backwards here. Wait, is it easy the or is it simple? The path of all understanding is easy. Ego separation of our day-to-day life is a lot of work. Yes. Okay, so would you agree with this statement or, or not? I say to my students often, and myself, I mean, on a regular basis, yoga is simple but not easy. And the reason why I use that is what you just said, that this play back and forth with the ego, that is, that's, that's a challenge. No, I wouldn't agree with it. I think yoga is easy. You just have to okay, stay with really? it. Okay, really? Yeah. Okay, fair. Remember, because uh, I always ask them, I ask them to look up simple and easy in the dictionary because they're not the same. Well, no, they aren't. But in this case, remember, when Patanjali was talking about, when he talked about asana, he was speaking of the sitting practice, and he made a statement, one of the defining. He said, success with asana is achieved through slight, persistent effort. The relaxation of that effort and the focus of the mind upon the infinite. So if yoga isn't easy, I'm going to suggest that you're not quite yet in yoga. Got it. That's fair. It should be slight, persistent effort. You know, when... Uh, students would ask me what I considered to be progress in when I used to teach physical asana. I would say mm-hmm. if you can increase your flexibility one ten thousandth of an inch in every class, then you're doing great. <laughs> oh, I love that. Thank you for that. 
That's that's fantastic. And I've also made a lot of, I don't know that the word is enemies, but there are people who have been very upset with me when I tell them to throw away their yoga journal calendar, to throw away all the pictures of people doing idealized physical asana. That's not what it's about. It's not about a performance art. This is not performance art. No. Well, there's a place for that. This is not it. Yeah. There's a place for that, but this is not it. Yoga is not performance art. And so, and it's not athletic. And so with this misunderstanding, people wind up hurting themselves and then I'm afraid, Kimberly, that maybe even to a small extent you've fallen into the trap. Yoga should always be easy. Hmm. Thank you. You bet. That that actually that makes a lot of sense. Thank you. I'm so glad that that our shows are archived. These are things that just so the listeners understand. I re-listen to this over and over again because I cannot get enough of my teachers, Salvatore being one that I work with on a regular basis. And because you can't, I really feel like you cannot hear it enough. It's more support hearing it again and again and again. And I think that's what's fortunate about having a uh podcast where you can revisit it over and over again. In fact, Salvatore and I were talking earlier this morning. He's going to go back, listen to the earlier shows again and again, just so that we know what's been said and where we're going from here. Don't you agree, Salvatore? You can't hear this enough. You're never really done. You don't. There just aren't many sources for hearing this. So right. it's, it's important for us in our ongoing learning process to be reviewing. Yeah. 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 So what I'm talking about is well, very foreign. Very foreign. Oh, it, it, it is. And, and we that's why we need to continue to discuss, you know, what that feels like. And what I'm, uh, my, my intention is for later this month, I opened up the phones last week for the first time. And I would like to do it on either the next show with Salvatore or the show following that. So it will either be, you know, in in another week or two or perhaps a month from now. We're going to open up the phones. He and I just have to learn how to be able to navigate that via the Internet. And as my listeners know, this is brand new to me. I'm learning and I'm excited about learning it and I am fallible when it comes to technology. So I would like to open up the phone so we can have more discussion and more questions from our listeners about, you know, these topics, what we're talking about, and be honest and open about it. I'm looking forward to that. And I think... Me too. You know... I've I've come to a completion. I'm trying to think if there's anything else I need to say in this segment about okay. yoga and religion. And I have to tell you, I feel complete. I think it's a pretty good, good. statement. I'll go through and listen to it again, and if I have anything to add, then we'll do it later. 
We will, for sure. And I, I thank you so much for your time, Salvatore. This is just such um, a wonderful experience for me. I know my listeners, um, the, the feedback that I've had, um, the listeners are really enjoying it. And, um, I, it, yeah, I appreciate your time. Well, it's fun for me, and it's great to, uh, to have this opportunity. And, of course, I enjoy any time I can have a conversation with you. I know. We do. We have such fun together. So, listen, I'm going to go ahead and wrap up the show and I just want everybody out there to be practicing now in all ways. You are worth it. Everyone around you is worth it. Breathe. Breathe deep. Complete. And be happy. Because I'm happy.